Subspace Transmission. Subspace Transmissions. Hey, it's Subspace Transmissions, everybody. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, yeah, uh, you, as you may have noticed, guess what? We've got ads now. Uh, don't want ads? Well, soldiers, for as little as $2 a month, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash dumbidiotbs and not only get ad-free episodes, you get them in high-quality stereo MP3 instead of that shitty mono trash. <laughs> you know who recorded in mono? Huh. Um, I don't know. Who's a... Who's a uh, J- J- James... Jack? <laughs> James Jack. <laughs> that's that person's made up um, I'm sure they exist somewhere shut up <laughs> uh, you get all of our episodes together instead of having to wait like everybody else for them to trickle out over the week like a lube out of your mouth why is it in your mouth I don't know stop trying to eat all that lube buddy also for you 10 mean strawberry flavored so why wouldn't you oh that's true uh, I I some, yeah I I ran out of uh, chocolate syrup, so I just put chocolate lube all over my ice cream the other day. How'd it go? Uh, it was pretty slippery. <laughs> it's hard to eat. <laughs> it went down real smooth. Um, also, for $10 a month, you get unlimited access to my Plex server, which is something like Netflix, basically. Mm. But I run it myself. Uh, you can request movies, shows, all that fun shit. I've got 15,000 films an ever-growing collection of TV shows. Uh, what, 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 what have I gotten recently that you noticed on my TV shows there, Pat? Uh, what was on there? Uh, I don't know. You tell me. Actually, I could probably tell you a lot better, but uh, I just got a series called Raven. I got uh, all of Stargate SG-1, all Stargate Atlantis. Uh, what else have I gotten recently? Oh, all of Red Dwarf. You like Red Dwarf? I haven't really watched it. No, yeah. Um, I got all the Super Dave Osborne show. Oh, my God. Yeah, no one has that. <laughs> <laughs> right, I got uh, all of Stacked, starring um, Pamela Anderson, where she works in a library. Pamela Anderson, very famous for uh, having uh, herself exposed to Tim Allen's penis by Tim Allen. Yeah, that was a thing that came out recently. Uh-huh. Uh, I've got Bob, a show about Bob Newhart, <laughs> uh, where he's like a comic writer or something. I okay. Know. I know, it's weird. Uh, a show you've never heard of, somehow. But lasted for five seasons called In the House that starred LL Cool J. You know what? I think I have heard of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, you got the head? Yeah, no one's ever heard of the head. Mike yeah. Judge was involved with it somehow. Oh, yes. Yeah. Also, Mission Hill. I loved Mission Hill. Yeah, Mission Hill is great. Only it lasted one season. Also got TV Funhouse. Have you ever watched that? Oh, I love TV Funhouse. Yeah, that's, that's good stuff. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I've got a huge collection of shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's just $10 a month. You know, it's the same price or cheaper than basically any other streaming service. And there's way more shit on there. Say you what? can request I get shit. It's like stuff from the memory hole as well. Yeah, it, it's literally like, so uh, there is, are at least uh, 500 films on here that were only ever released on VHS. Mm-hmm. Um, probably about two or 3,000 films that are completely unavailable streaming or digitally anywhere whatsoever. Mm. Like, it's, it's just like stuff that doesn't exist. Um, and it's rare shit. Like, if you're a, if you're a big fan of uh, Red Letter Media, which I know a lot of our fans are, Basically, every single film they've ever talked about, including on Wheel of the Worst, I've got on here. Oh, shit. Like, including some crazy rare shit like Surviving Edged Weapons in its original format. (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, just like in, uh, you know, I've, I've donated stuff to there that's been on the wheel of the worst that they just haven't uh, chosen. Oh, but it's been there. So that, that's always fun to see. Yeah. Like one day they will choose it. Maybe. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? So uh, also, uh, if you uh, pay five dollars a month, we mention your name and say thank you to people just like Dan Morrison, Dylan Lance, Ian Killia, Joanna Hearn, Jordan Hale, Nick Savard, Shane Sawyer and David Croning Seats, who are all awesome and deserve, let's see, um, a nice little ukulele song. Aww. So if you're in uh, any position to make him a nice little ukulele song that doesn't sound like one of those shitty commercial songs. Yeah. I can if, give if, you're, if you're Tiny Tim. <laughs> yeah. Don't do a Tiny Tim, because he did bad things. He did life. do some bad things. Uh, once again, that's patreon.com slash dumbidiotbs. That's dumbidiot and the letters BS, which stand for bullshit, but also stand for bungalow sinner, which oh. is not a coincidence. Oh, bungler. Yeah, oh, oh, bungler sinner. <laughs> sinner, oh, bungler. That's what we call Obama around these parts. <laughs> so, uh, all right, let's, uh, let's jump into uh, some, some, uh, some facts and figures yeah. about Star Trek Insurrection. So let's start with the story development. So development of the ninth Star Trek film, Insurrection, began in earnest in February of 1997 when producer Rick Berman and Paramount Pictures approached Star Trek The Next Generation veteran writer-producer Michael Piller for story ideas. With Star Trek First Contact screenwriters Ronald D. Moore and Brandon Braga occupied not only by their work on Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager, respectively, but also together on Paramount's Mission Impossible 2, mm. Berman and Piller would tackle the film alone. Pillar had previously declined the opportunity to write 1994's Star Trek Generations due to inter-office competition for the project and admitted that he found First Contact too dark. His involvement with the new film project came under the provision that it be lighter than the previous two, saying, quote, The strength of Star Trek depends on making people feel good about the future. Over the last 10 years, the American public has turned to darker and darker science fiction. But I think the fans love the parameters that Gene Roddenberry set for us, mm -hmm. the box that he puts us in. It's an intellectual challenge, but we have to stay in that box. Hmm. I don't see how this is any less dark than First Contact, to be honest. Yeah, honestly, it, I mean... It's not. <laughs> yeah, there's not really a, that much of a hopeful message at the end. No, it's it's like... There's another, wanted... like, absolute power corrupts absolutely yeah. type thing. Yeah, right? <laughs> And great inhumanity to man. Yeah. Like, at least at the end of fucking, like, you know, first contact, you get first contact with the Vulcans and shit. Like, <laughs> at the end of this, they're like, well, that was fucked up. I guess maybe we shouldn't report that one to Starfleet. <laughs> yeah. well, Starfleet's in on it. Oh, my God. Uh, uh, so, uh, again, a mesh of ideas, like its predecessor, would eventually become Star Trek Insurrection, says Pillar. Emerged from its own experience, uh, emerged from his own experience with aging, saying, quote, I literally got the idea for this film one morning is I was putting on my Rogaine. <laughs> not that I needed, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Pillar seized upon the prevailing attitudes and focus of American society on youth, deciding to craft a story based on the search for the fountain of youth. Rick Berman, meanwhile, hoped to remake a classic story into a Star Trek film. The collaborators utilized John Conrad's The Heart of Darkness uh, and the concept of traveling upriver to form their outline. Hmm. 
I love how fucking Michael Pillar's like, yeah, the last two movies were too dark. You know what we should base this one on? Heart of Darkness. <laughs> what? That's a dark book. Yeah, he's like. It's a very dark book. Yeah. I mean, it's got the word dark in its title. <laughs> Literally darkness. Um, yeah. <laughs> so in a story titled Star Trek Stardust, named after the Hoagie Carmichael song. Captain, oh, okay. Captain, Captain, <laughs> you don't, man, you don't know a Hoagie Carmichael? <laughs> Where you been the 1970s, my friend? You don't know Stardust by Hoagie? That's a name that really fell to the sidelines that mm. we need to bring back, Hoagie. Yeah, also, fun fact, uh, my dad's band in Alaska was called Stardust. I actually still mm. have a shirt that's like a sparkly shirt that says Stardust. Oh, my God. It's the gayest shirt I own. <laughs> And my dad used to own it, which makes me go, hmm. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, fuck a hoagie Carmichael. Uh, Captain Picard is sent to track down a former Starfleet Academy classmate named Duffy, who is attacking Romulan ships in the far reaches of space. As the Enterprise crew pursues Duffy, they grow younger in age as they close in on the fountain of youth powers of the Briar Patch. Problems with the dramatic impact of such a storyline, however, plagued the development. Berman believed the film to be too political in the Fountain of Youth scenario, too fantasy-like. What? (laughs) All right. Ultimately, uh, the rejuvenation of the crew was dropped in favor of a story more closely modeled on Heart of Darkness. Drama upped by the replacement of Duffy with Data. The second draft of Stardust featured Picard in pursuit of Data. Eventually battling and killing Data in the second act, Picard would ultimately reactivate the android in time to save the Federation from an unholy alliance with the Romulans. Which they are currently aligned with the Alliance. <laughs> right? According to Pillar, quote, How do you outborg the Borg? How do you create a villain or adversor- adversary that will be their equal? The answer is, don't try make a different kind of movie, which I actually agree with. Yeah. Like, yeah, don't make a bigger bad. Yeah, don't, don't, don't fight it. Yeah. Um, so distributing the story to Paramount executives, Pillar and Berman received mixed reviews, something reiterating Berman's previous concern that it was, quote, too political. Others opposed the idea of aligning the Federation with the film's villains. The biggest blow to Stardust, however, came from Patrick Stewart, <laughs> writing to Big Ber- surprise. Mm-hmm writing to Berman from the set of the TV movie adaptation of Moby Dick. According to Stewart, quote, I said three things. One, I thought that Picard's involvement in the action line of First Contact had been very successful, and I wanted to continue that. My feeling was that the captain should be in the thick of things. You've got to have the captain in jeopardy. Then I talked about perhaps trying to find a lighter tone for this film. I wanted to see our heroes having fun. And the last thing I suggested was that we should develop a romantic storyline that went a little farther than the one I had with Alfre Woodward in the last film. I'm sorry, CCH Pounder in the last <laughs> film. But, but it didn't really get to be that romantic, unfortunately. Which it didn't. I, w- I, w- I would have liked that. I would have liked uh, see them like uh, yeah, slap some shit together. I would have liked to together. see him do a CCH pounding, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> He said, he continues, uh, that was a fairly competitive relationship, which ultimately became respectful and fond towards the end, but it was just too late. 
Yeah, it would have worked out the uh, timeline wise, considering she's a uh, she's of a different of a different timeline, and he could have. Yeah. But he could have been like, "You're so young. You're like 400 years younger than me, girl. That's so hot." Actually, no, she's 400 years older than him. You're right, and he always falls he, for older women. Yeah, so, yeah, there you go. <laughs> she's like the same age as uh, whatever Anish or whatever in this film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she is. Yeah. So. Uh, Finally given a chance to sit down and speak to Stuart, uh, a disheartened pillar found that they were actually interested in telling the exact same story, <laughs> saying, quote, It came to pass that the conflict that I had with Patrick really is what saved this project and did give me what I wanted in the first place. Stuart was especially enthusiastic about the Fountain of Youth notion, reintroduced into the third draft screenplay, mm-hmm. retaining but still con- uh, confining the conflict with data to the first act only, the new storyline introduced new villains called the Sony, victimizing the Baku, a race of children. This draft introduced elements that remained intact through the final film, introducing the regeneration of Jory LaForge's eyes, the rejuvenation of Riker and Troy's romance, and Worf's puberty. <laughs> In it, Picard would rebel against a faction of Federation officers allied with the Sony to steal the Baku planet. Giving the new draft uh, to DS9 executive producer Ira Stephen Bear, Pillar once again received negative reviews. Hell yeah, he did. Ira came into the office and sort of looked at me across a desk, took off his sunglasses and said, Mikey. (laughs) My wife. And I said, oh, geez, because Ira never takes off his sunglasses. That's so sick. That is so. That's so sick. I love Iris Stephen Bear so much more. And that is very true. During like the entire of um of what we left behind. Mm-hmm. Oh, he never takes them. Never off. takes them no, off. No, no. It's he's so cool. He knows he's so cool. <laughs> According to Pillar, uh, Berman referred to the Sony as paper tigers, telling him that Picard's motivation to defy Starfleet was flimsy. To strengthen Picard's reasons for going AWOL, the Baku were made into adults, allowing for the. In- introduction of Anij, a love interest for the captain. I think this was a great idea because, like, if they would have made him kids, it would have suffered from the same thing that, like, fucking Beyond Thunderdome suffered from. Yeah. Fucking um, uh, Return of the Jedi suffered from. Like, you never have a fucking kid planet or a kid race. No. Kids suck. Or fucking Hook. Yeah. Hook sucks. It's like, the, it'd be like that one Tuvok episode where, oh, uh, where yeah. it turned out all, uh, it was like a Benjamin Button plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we hate that. So uh, the fourth draft of the um, of the screenplay incorporated more action elements and featured a more gruesome race of villains, now called the Sona instead of Sony. Uh, bandying about new titles for the film, including Star Trek Prime Directive and Star Trek Nemesis, the name of the 10th film, uh, Star Trek Insurrection was ultimately decided upon. One studio executive suggesting that a long title was more interesting. Mm-hmm. Another executive, however, suggested another title be found, allegedly because they did not know what insurrection meant. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad that person is running the fucking entertainment industry. Yeah, <laughs> like really. That, that person's making half a million dollars a year, <laughs> making making decisions about what Americans watch. <laughs> Cool. Well, I mean, I don't think any of the, the Hollywood sickos have ever been like that smart. Yeah, but I mean, these are the people like in charge of Star Trek discussions, which is yeah. not good. No, I mean, he definitely was like, yeah, my dad owns the studio. <laughs> <laughs> 
So Michael Piller explained some early ideas in the draft of the script, saying, quote, In that script, we got to meet Picard at the Academy. One of his best friends, uh, who played a huge part in the movie, Boothby, and the planet of 10-year-olds. <laughs> so, that sounds like something that should be legal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it sounds like some, like, a, not, like, a, like a video that should be like on the black market. So here's some explanation about Jedzia Dax. So uh, yeah. following the confirmation of Terry Farrell's departure from Star Trek Deep Space Nine and the plans to kill the character off, Michael Piller wanted to add a couple of lines to the film acknowledging Jedzia Dax's death and the impact it had on Worf. Rick Berman eventually overruled this, arguing that this would confuse film audiences who didn't follow the show regularly. But the Dominion War doesn't? Like, fuck you, man. <laughs> fuck you. Um, fuck you, Rick. <laughs> he does suck. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about pre-production and visual effects. By the start of 1998... Or the lack thereof. Yeah. Pre-production <laughs> on Star Trek Insurrection began with set and conceptual drawings uh, generated by Herman Zimmerman and illustrator John Eaves, uh, who had worked on the prior two films, and Herman Zimmerman going back like five films. Uh, director Jonathan Frakes returned to helm his second uh, Trek film and co-starred as Commander Riker. Patrick Stewart also did double duty as Captain Picard and associate producer. With Industrial Light and Magic busy with work on Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, Frakes and company turned to a new visual effects house for the first time since Star Trek V The Final Frontier. Splitting the workload were Blue Sky VIFX and Santa Barbara Studios, (laughs) who were hired to contribute uh, the almost entirely digital visual effects, some traditional physical model photography limited to the explosion of the Sona collector ship. So this explains why it fucking sucked. Is uh, this is back when Industrial Light and Magic was unionized, and I'm gonna bet both of these places aren't. I'm gonna bet both of those places are now closed. I'd hope so because this is yeah they should have just waited for them to be free because the fucking effects on this film suck for the most part. Yeah, like some of the space stuff's cool, but like a lot of it. Yeah. They done so, fucked up. Yep. Illustrator John Eves continued uh, saying, "Quote." And this was also the movie where we decided that scales were going to be the very most important aspect to the drawings. The scales of the ships in Insurrection changed drastically throughout the effects part of the film, based on what would be seen with the story and how the scenes would play out. And from that point, we all kind of decided we needed a scale set, so we started making drawings that would show those scales, and you would have everything in comparison with the Enterprise-E. Uh, This movie was the first feature film where it was conceived that all the visual effects would be executed as CGI. At that point in time, the technique was still relatively new, and the workload entailed in creating these effects was such that it uh, was decided to employ two effects houses for their creation, uh, as previously mentioned. Um, Blue Sky and VIFXs was contracted to provide all planet-bound effects, as well as the interior Sona Collector visuals, and as it turned out during production, it's destruction as well. Whereas SBS was more uh, made responsible for all space-bound visuals. Uh, so I'm pretty sure Blue Sky and VIFX was the one who fucked all this up. Mm-hmm. Whereas SBS did fine. Yeah. Uh, creating digital ships on the computer involved building intricate designs. Doing so was a labor and time-consuming effort from a technological standpoint, given the state of CGI technology at the time. I mean, I can imagine they probably had some, like, dudes just, like, working, like, 
16 hour days mm-hmm. <laughs> and then and the, and the uh, you know and then are more like just like doing this stuff it just smells like balls in there yeah like real balls surviving on red bulls and <laughs> this is pre-red bull my friend oh yeah i think yeah yeah probably i think it might be um so uh sps's effects supervisor john grower recalled quote each ship was made up he's a grower not a shower uh, <laughs> <laughs> Each ship was made up of lots of nerve surfaces, and the databases were hundreds of megabytes per ship. Whoa! These models were very heavy, but Maya, the CGI software package of choice at SBS, allowed us to efficiently structure and organize the data. We went through several iterations of the ship designs before we got approval, and Maya helped a lot there as well. Once we got the ships approved, of course, we had to make them look real. As for the texturing, uh, as for texturing the CGI models, instead of applying texture maps and skin around the wireframe models, as was later commonplace method, SBS mo- used a method called slide projectors. Describing these projectors, Grower offered, "Quote: Imagine a spaceship with all these slide projectors pointed at various parts of it, projecting high-resolution images that dissolve from one projector to the next, where they overlap, so we don't see any seams." That allows us to have infinite detail as we rotate around the ship without all of the stretching problems that occur when we wrap a flat object around 3D geometry. It was imperative for us to use this approach because of the multi-curved surfaces of the ships. Also, instead of having a texture for every NURB surface, which is what we did before, and there might be hundreds, this technique enabled us to simultaneously project onto several NURB surfaces. Instead of having a hundred textures, we had 30 or so, over which we'd add dozens of layers of different textures and effects maps per ship to create highlights and other things. And then we'd render them with RenderMan. <laughs> it was very time-consuming to get the CG models to look right because the filmmakers had been shooting the Star Trek models for, uh, for a long time, and they knew exactly what type of look they wanted. Mm-hmm. They would make us revise the models until they were right, which was very, very difficult. Still... Animation supervisor James Strauss considered the effort worthwhile. He remarked, quote, In this movie, there was an attempt to do more wild actions than the usual shift maneuvers in the Star Trek films, probably since we were using CG and didn't have to worry about the lack of flexibility with physical model mounts. Let's uh, move on to a few production notes here. Uh, In the production, according to Herman Zimmerman, (laughs) Insurrection was the feature film with the most built sets in uh, the Star Trek franchise. Hmm. It included 55 individual sets, 18 more than Star Trek First Contact used. That's fascinating because everything looks so fucking bland. I know, right? It's so (laughs) weird to me. I'm like, I'm trying to count 18 different sets in this film alone. And I'm like, what? There's Yoga Studio. Bridge. Collector, Sona ship, uh, I guess sick bay. Uh, the engineering room of the Sona ship. Oh, uh, uh, wait, did they even ever show the like the the brig and the holding cells? I don't think so. I don't know. There's the uh, there's the, the cave, inside of the, the caves. caves. Yeah, the caves. The caves. The caves. Um. Yeah. Oh, the, the the there's the bathtub. There's the that's bathtub. A whole, that's a whole scene in itself. Yeah. Uh, uh, fucking. Yeah, um, Picard's room. Uh, oh, the uh, the captain's yacht. Uh, yeah, several captain's yacht locations. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so let's move on. 
we're not going to do that. <laughs> uh, we're at six. The cave set used in some scenes on the Baku planet was the same cave set used throughout DS9, okay. located at Paramount Stage 16. I wonder if it's the same one that uh, Ducat died in. Probably. Yeah, that'd be cool as hell. <laughs> you can see like where Ducat died. <laughs> Ducat's skull is just lying in a pile. Yeah. <laughs> uh, significantly expanded to include multiple levels, though. Um, when the film wrapped, the cave uh, retained its modifications and was most recognizably featured in the DS9 fi- finale, What You Leave Behind is the Bajoran Fire Cave. So yes, it was. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Anthony Zerby, who played Doherty, initially read for the pol- uh, role of Bill Maher. Mm. Uh, when the, but the part was given to F. Murray Abraham. The producers offered him the role of the Admiral instead, which he took. F. Murray Abraham has said in interviews that he felt so strongly about his role in Insurrection, he would have done only Star Trek movies for the rest of his career. Damn. Right? Uh, Abraham also compared acting in prosthetic makeup to making love in the dark. <laughs> He's a fun guy. Yeah, he's pretty cool. That's like, such a weird thing to say. That I would have loved it if he just had like a uh, Jeffrey Combs type career where he just played multiple different dudes. That would have ruled. But I feel like he's a bit more expensive than Jeffrey. I mean, he's got a fucking Academy Award. Like the dude's yeah. expensive to work with, probably. Mm-hmm. Which is why one thing I notice, like um, basically all of the TNG films uh. are a time when they're like, hey, we can actually spend $2 million on a villain this time yeah. to make this episode. Which is, you know. It is what it is. Let's get F. Murray Abraham and then put a bunch of like skin on him so he looks unrecognizable. Yeah, or fucking uh, up and coming Tom Hardy. Yeah. <laughs> as as uh, Picard with dick sucking lips. He does have dick sucking lips. Uh, some real dick sucking lips. <laughs> so let's move on to some dick sucking trivia. Dick sucking trivia. All right. Uh, in an interview given for Star Trek Monthly during pre production, Rick Berman stated that Q would be in the film. Hmm. suggesting that the producers hoped to bring the character onto the big screen. I would have loved that. Yeah, that would have been ruled. Yeah, well, Q would have, like, done well in a movie. Straight up. Like, they could do a movie about the Q. That would yeah, because, like, like, a lot, you know, is like, the the first the first episode of TNG and the last are very cinematic, I feel, like, already. And, yeah. and Q did excellent in that. And mm-hmm. if he had had, like, another, like a like, a grander scale problem like a yeah. q level pro- problem that would have definitely like trumped the dominion Cause, war because that's the awesome thing about q is like all of q's problems are, are universe-wide problems yeah. because they're like omniscient like mm-hmm. omnipresent beings mm-hmm. and so their problems are fucking everybody's problems or if he puts them at a problem like they can't escape it because he's omniscient and like in like in you know like so, wh- whatever whims he has, like the Dominion War is completely irrelevant, relevant mm. to him. If he decides to just like spend the day fucking with Picard, he can spend it, and they yeah. they they can't say otherwise. And like I mean, like so, so the Q are basically gods, right? And yeah. so you can do so many things with this. You could make in like an a a high stakes Star Trek Five type film where it's like the Q are in danger of being killed, mm-hmm. and that would throw everything out of order because they are. At least in you know like the non mirror universe, they are basically the the gods that keep order. Also, do you think Hugh knew Cisco was a god? You know, because like he always in that one episode, and he got punched and fucking left. Yeah, and, and but like, but he already you know probably prob, you know probably already knows he's a god. Like Cisco is a god himself. Yeah, I'd imagine so. Like, yeah. He, yeah, he's omniscient. He has to yeah. know Cisco's a god. Yeah, right? but yeah, there's no hint of that when he visited. But it would have been nice. 
Anyway, uh, ultimately, however, uh, any such plans to include Q and John Delancey were either dismissed or proved unworkable. As Jonathan Frakes noted in a later interview for the same magazine, uh, Q is not in the script, I've seen, much to my chagrin. (laughs) Perfectly put. Perfectly put. The Tarlac and the Elora were not included in the screenplay until the very last draft right before production. Which is interesting. Mm-hmm. I guess that works. I mean, it makes them like, you know, those races being subjugated uh, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, while shooting a scene on the bridge in which Picard, Riker, and Troy discuss the duck blind mission, Jonathan Frakes had to wear a fake beard, having already <laughs> shaved it for upcoming scenes. Well, I didn't really tell. Yeah, I couldn't tell either. So yeah. That's interesting. Uh, Troy tells Riker that she had never kissed him with a beard. However, in TNG Second Chances, Troy kissed Riker's transport copy, Thomas Riker, who had an identical beard and seemed unbothered by it. Hmm. So although what she says is true, she has kissed a Riker with that beard. It's true, mm-hmm. but she hasn't kissed that Riker. I wonder if Thomas Riker's beard is softer, though. It could be. One, one must you know, he, it, being you know, all that time alone, he yeah. probably. It's developed... like I have an oil. I found an oil. <laughs> it is interesting that they both independently decided to grow beards. Yeah, makes sense. I guess. Yeah. Man of a certain age grows a beard. Yeah. Especially, I mean, it it makes sense for Thomas Riker because he's just alone on a ship. Oh, it's he's true. I mean, yeah, when they picked him up, he looked all fucked up, and then mm-hmm. he decided to shave it more like uh, look like Will Riker. Yeah. So. This is the first of only two Star Trek films not to feature any scenes on or near Earth. Oh, yeah. Can you guess what the other one was? It's Beyond. Oh, Star Trek Beyond. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I like that one. (laughs) Uh, This is the only Star Trek movie uh, without any Stardate reference. And Mm. one of two movies, the other being Star Trek Into Darkness in which no captain's log entry is heard. Uh, although in Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, also no log entry, um, Kirk does at least begin to record one. Oh, yeah. yeah. This film marks the first time that Geordi LaForge has been at the helm of the Enterprise since the TNG episode, The Neutral Zone. Mm. Interesting. Captain, it made no sense why he was there in the first it place. It really doesn't. Like, in the... And, and, like, it is the first appearance at the helm. That makes sense, because he wasn't yet chief engineer. True. Like, why? Here, here they should be like, get the fuck back to engineering. <laughs> yeah, like... He's like, I need more screen time for my SAG credit. Yeah, how's, how's the warp core going? <laughs> uh, so, Captain Picard tells Anij, seeing his home planet for the first time from space was a moment when time stood <clears throat> still. A perfect moment. We can see the captain sharing this approach with Riven in uh, the episode Justice... Nuria in Who Watches the Watchers, Mirasta Yale in First Contact, and Lily in Star Trek First Contact. So he's like, this is very consistent and something Picard has said like mm. five times at this point, which is pretty cool. Yeah, but no, but no mention of his dead mom. No, that doesn't. Why would he say that? Yeah, <laughs> uh, that, that's trauma. He 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 needs. Q but that's to deal that's with. apparently the most that's the most important thing to ever happen. No, no, to him. Q, yeah, Q needs to help him with that. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, he can't fuck the Romulan. Uh, so, at 103 minutes, this is the shortest of all 13 Star Trek movies. Two minutes shorter than The Search for Spock. Hmm. I actually didn't know that. It's fun. The Sona went on to be mentioned later in the DS9 episode Penumbra indicating either that there were more than just a few ships worth seen in this film or that the episode took place before the movie. Mm. 
The Sona were also mentioned by Admiral Janeway in the next movie. Hmm. Although the Avora were never mentioned again, several members of the species appear in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Voyager, and Star Trek Lower Decks. Hmm. Which is interesting. I don't. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I don't remember any apparently. So that's cool. Yeah. They always put like in Lower Decks, especially. They always put like. The really obscure people. Yeah, like pack leads and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, they just like hanging around. put them in the background or yeah, some yeah, shit. Yeah, we like that, though. Um, Jordy LaForge's dialogue when he discusses seeing the sunrise for the first time with his eyes mirrors his words to Natasha Yar when he was infected with polywater intoxication in the TNG episode, The Naked Now, hmm. before she goes and fucks Data. It is funny. Like, that was such a good performance from... Uh, LeVar Burton. It was a great, prof- but they have him so, they only have him like five minutes in this. Film. Yeah, they really just dragged him out to do that monologue and they're like, all right, get out of here. We got to have Picard pick get up. Get out of here and go read a book to some kids, all yeah. right? <laughs> we got to let Picard like swing on a vine and shoot some people. Yeah, they like they really criminally underuse so many actors and they criminally overuse so many actors yes. in these films. Like, and that's, they, they try to center Picard so much in all of these films and they needn't, they needn't. No. Like they they try to center Picard and Data, and they really don't need to. The first act of this film, where where Data is like going out of control, uh-huh. kind of sucks, and it's weird. Yeah, it's a weird way to to start the movie off. It is like you know, it's like especially you know they talk about you know not wanting to confuse the audience with mm-hmm. references to Worf's dead wife. It's just right. like okay, so so if you were just go into this movie completely blind, not knowing anything about Star Trek, mm. like you'd be like, wait, why is it weird that this robots freaking out <laughs> but but they're assuming that you saw tng but not ds9 yeah which yeah. is such a weird thing to assume because mm-hmm. as i said earlier like ds9 had like two-thirds of the exact same audience as tng yeah like i mean yeah it wasn't as popular <sighs> but it was still very successful yeah like and it's it's super fucking weird to me too that they include some Voyager people in the previous film and the next film mm-hmm. and Voyager was far less successful than ds9 yeah like they could have been maybe trying hard to really push Voyager though, because Voyager was kind of suffering, right? It was. It yeah. was. It was suffering. Well, I mean, no, they actually did a lot better right after this. Because that's so, when they got seven of nine. Yeah, yeah, seven of nine. Like they actually Skin started tight cat suit. Yeah, they were they were down in the ratings and like below where DS Nine was. And after uh, after they fu- got fucking um, seven of nine, they actually shot up like to a I think a little bit above mm-hmm. uh, DS Nine and then leveled out by the end of the series. You can see the outline of her asshole. Hell yeah. Uh, so the Turlac were once seen uh, seen once more in the Voyager episode Lifeline, uh, though in the form of a holographic masseuse, which mm. is weird. Um, recent Star Trek novels have made a reference to Admiral Doherty as an operative of Section 31. Oh, shit. That would make sense. Yeah, which makes a lot more sense, I think, actually. So this was the first time that Jonathan Frakes had, was fil- uh, filmed clean-shaven since TNG's first season. Mm. Although he is beardless in TNG's All Good Things, but it mm-hmm. was a stock footage from uh, the Arsenal of Freedom episode mm-hmm. from season one. Although Brent Spiner filmed scenes for Data's walk into the lake, including close-ups, only stuntman Brian J. Williams' walk was used for the final movie. Mm. Among the auction items from It's a Wrap on eBay, uh, which were seen in the film, was a cloaking suit wrist scanner. A Federation pad and a scratch paper pad from the deleted library scene. 
all that shit is probably in someone's garage right now and in a box underneath okay, no a bunch one of other cares boxes. About that shit, yeah, like, no one just, knows <laughs> what it is anymore. Yeah, they probably they probably spent their kids like fucking college fund <laughs> on, on this shit, and they're just like, uh, "What do I do with this now?" All right, it's in a box, and whoever is died, it's probably got sold on fucking like pond on a on a storage wars or something. <laughs> D- Daddy, why can't I go to a college? <laughs> Son, have you ever seen Star Trek fucking Insurrection? No one has, Dad. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> oh. Opens drawer. Looks at gun. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> what, have, what have I done? <laughs> yeah. uh, this was the last Star Trek film to have the cast and crew credits at the start of the movie. Hmm. Star Trek Nemesis, Star Trek, and all the Kelvin movies since have had their credits after the movie is finished. This is now standard for most major Hollywood films. Hmm. This is also the last Star Trek film to use the 1986 through 2002 Paramount Pictures logo. Hmm. The poster and tagline for this film closely resemble the British VHS cover for Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country, which feature a similar shot of the Enterprise A flying away from the viewer and a face looming in space. The UK tagline for The Undiscovered Country was, The Battle for Peace Has Begun. Which is a fun line. Yeah, and it doesn't make sense in the context of that film, really. Yeah. Um, sets for various sections of the Enterprise E, including Sick Bay, Crew Quarters, Troy's Office, the Transporter Room, and the Ship's Library, which wasn't featured, uh, were all redressed interiors used on the TV series Star Trek Voyager. Hmm. The film was shot between uh, the series' fourth and fifth seasons. During at least one scene in engineering, directly behind the warp core can be seen two cylindrical posts with inset monitors that were used in interior shots of Borg cubes and Malon vessels. The body shop set is a redress of the Kyrian Museum of Heritage from the Voyager episode Living Witness. The Enterprise E's reception hall was a redress of the Observation Lounge from Star Trek First Contact, which itself was a redress of the very same room from the TV series Star Trek TNG. Sets for Data's scout ship, the Enterprise E shuttlecraft, and Captain Picard's yacht were revamped versions of the Class II shuttle from Voyager and the Federation runabout from DS9, respectively. Many of these set pieces from the Sona ship later comprised the interior of Sulaban starships, beginning with Enterprise first episode, Broken Bow. Wall fixtures in Bill Maher's briefing room later appeared in Fusion in the bar on Earth on Enterprise. The computer table seen in Bill Maher's briefing room also appeared later uh, when it was used in the Enterprise-E's stellar cartography room in Star Trek Nemesis. Minor details of the Enterprise's bridge were changed. Most significantly, the holographic view screen seen in First Contact was replaced with a more traditional version, and the computer consoles next to Riker and Troy's seats were removed. Though That's they, good. Yeah. Although, I hated those little tables. Although they returned for Nemesis. No! Uh, the color palette of the graphics were adjusted and brightened, and the consoles received uh, headers stating their position. Small strips of metallic tape were also applied to the walls as highlights. Despite the film's PG rating, which I actually didn't know until now, <laughs> uh, Admiral Doherty's death is fairly gruesome, 
but is at a level similar to such deaths in PG-rated horror films in the 1960s and early 80s. I mean, it looks like a cartoon, so... Yeah, it looks bad. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I still thought it, this film kind of deserved a PG-13 rating, I think, but okay. Yeah. Um... I can see like them cleaning. I mean, there's it's pretty bloodless, I, except I, for the blood that like pops out I of mean, uh, out of out of F. Murray Abraham's yeah, head. I, I really just wanted them to have the one F word um, that uh, every PG thirteen film has, just so Riker can lean over to Deanna and be like, "You won't fuck." <laughs> I mean, that would have made this movie. That I would have given it another point and a half if they would have just had that line. Oh yeah, absolutely. Perfect. It would probably be the best. <laughs> Out of all the movies. Probably, yeah. Would, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so this is not the first time that Jordy LaForge was granted his sight, but considered the price too high. The first time was in uh, the TNG episode Hide and Q. Mm. The Federation Holoship's cloak is not brought up by Picard as Doherty has been, uh, a, is not a by Picard to Doherty as being a violation of the Treaty of Alger, uh, Algeron which is why they're not allowed to use them, but mm-hmm. do anyway for the Defiant. I mean, they're fine using the cloak for um, uh, for the people to walk around the village. Yeah, absolutely. Like, that's not a violation either? Yeah, and it's weird that they can, like, cloak anything now, I guess. Yeah. Which is like, they should be cloaking people a lot more in this movie, right? Yeah, probably. Like, they should be cloaking themselves from fucking Bill Maher and their people. Yeah, or like Bill Maher's people could have been using it to cloak from them. Yeah, yeah, because it might be their technology. I don't even. They could have cloaked the fucking um, uh, collector. Yeah, they could have cloaked everything. That'd have been like they obviously they had it for the hollow ship. Why the hollow ship of all things, and not and not the fucking collector? Well, because the hollow ship uh, is hidden underwater, but still needs to be invisible, (laughs) and also like buried under so much water that you need a fucking. A release valve. It's like, oh yeah, we're doing some fucked up shit that you know a lot of people would ha- have a lot of problems with. You know what? Let's just leave it out in the open. Hell yeah, we love that shit. So, the hollow ship in the third uh, is sorry. The hollow ship is the third Federation ship known to use Federation cloaking device, and not one deployed by another species. The following is a list of ships using cloaks not developed by them. First one is uh, in the mirror universe. The ISS Enterprise used a Sulabon cloak in twenty one fifty five. And then the original USS Enterprise used a Romulan cloak. And then the USS Defiant also used a loaned Romulan cloak. So let's move on to costumes. Mm. The costumes in this film were phenomenal. I will say that this might have the best costumes of any Star Trek film. Except except for the Baku. Baku just looked like they walked out of like yeah they're 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 a dirty village they're one well of they the, walked out they looked like they walked out of a Gap ad they're just like you know wearing like you know nineties uh, whites beiges and browns uh, I mean they're they're more medievalish than that they're wearing like old uh, agrarian culture yeah. like vests and stuff there's a lot of vests and leather and <laughs> stuff going on here I would have liked that they had like some some sort of like crazy ass shit you know like some sort of like you know Jake Cisco type like fits or, or cool. quark fits just yeah. like something that's visually interesting to look at or they're just naked or they're just naked yeah, yeah. i mean i would have loved it if the baku actually had some sort of like physically defining feature of some kind oh, they do they're just hidden under some pants you know what i'm saying <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all have at least four giant penises on this planet and they all look like spider legs <laughs> <laughs> they call me daddy long legs because i have the biggest penises of our people <laughs> <laughs> that would be great if like yeah they're just like well like they just like actually ambulate on like fucking spider legs and stuff <laughs> 
<laughs> no, no, thank you. Uh, so this movie featured the first motion picture appearance of the new Starfleet Admiral's uniform, which uh, had already appeared in DS9 and Voyager. Yeah, that weird ass belt. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of like power, it. That looks like it looks like a Power Ranger belt. Kind of does. It's like real thick and shit. It's kind of dope. Yeah, it looks like he was about to summon like the Trianor- Tri- Tyrannosaurus uh, uh, Megazord at some point. Oh, I'd like that. <laughs> so this uh, also featured the de- debut of the new Starfleet dress uniform. Uh, this time a design that significantly departed from earlier designs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the new dress uniform featured a color similar to those seen in the next generation uniforms and replaced prominent division colors uh, for white over gray. Card's uniform was white over white. The uniform reappeared in DS9 uh, in Inter Arma and Rim Silent Legis. And in Star Trek Nemesis, where Data and Worf donned the uniforms as well. The metal bars attached to the Sona, Tarlac, and Alora uniforms were added to denote rank. The Tarlac wore purple uniforms, the Alora were blue. This was to make it easier for the audience to visually differentiate them. <laughs> Maybe don't have two of them then? Yeah. I don't understand why they needed two of them. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Whatever. Uh, Captain Picard's waistcoat, as seen uh, in much of First Contact, never made it into the final cut of the film, but was worn in a deleted scene in which the captain spills his lunch on himself. <laughs> which I need to see. Yeah. I need to see that. Yeah. Like, why? Why do you include that in the film? That's amazing. <laughs> the uniform variant did not appear again in the movies, but was seen being worn by Benjamin Sisko and Luther Sloan on DS9. Mm. Among the costumes from this film, which were sold off on the It's a Wrap sale auction on eBay, were Gates McFadden's civilian costume after the cave collapse, Katrina's boots, Zorav Avispan's costume, Fabio Filoni's costume, a Sona energy pistol, holster, and harness, and a lot of Starfleet ration packs. Which would be cool to have a ration pack just to carry shit around. I feel that stuff like costs more to throw in the garbage. <laughs> like, like, like you actually lose money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you like throw in the garbage, and like the, the people coming for trash pickup are like, "How much you paying us to take this bullshit?" <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, let's uh, let's that's all the uh, costumes and prop stuff. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about music. How'd you like the music on this movie? Didn't really notice it. Really, I thought it was great. Uh, Jerry mm. Goldsmith obviously came back mm. using all his Jerry Goldsmith themes as he does. I uh, mean, I think like the the first contact song was way more. Uh, it was better, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, so, while the commercial soundtrack release for Insurrection featured more than Jerry Goldsmith's previous <laughs> release, First Contact, much of the score was still left out. Uh, this inspired fans of Star Trek and movie music to compile a bootleg score featuring almost double the music as heard on the album. The complete Star Trek Insurrection score remains a heavily traded and sold score, though none of the proceeds ever went to Goldsmith. Which is fun. So GNP Crescendo Records released an expanded version of the score in August of 2013, despite the original soundtrack that is still in production. This was meant to make the wildly circulated bootleg obsolete. Although this does contain every note heard in the film, the only track that is unique to the original soundtrack is Children's Story, which is longer than the final film version. One of the pieces of classical music used in the film during the reception is incorrectly listed in the credits. 
The actual piece is string quartet number 17 in B flat major, uh, K458, The Hunt, I Allegro Vivashi Asani by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Oh. So it's a Mozart thing. Interesting maybe callback. Maybe, maybe that's why they included it. That'd be cool if they actually used a Salieri composition, because mm. a few of those still exist. Nice. Uh, not included in the credits was the piece played as Picard leaves the antechamber after speaking with the Admiral, just before the scene uh, transitions to the Sona vessel in the Briar Patch. This piece is Violin Concerto in G Minor, RV 317-3 Allegro by Vivaldi. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the reception. Reviews and opinions. Insurrection received mixed reviews from mainstream film critics. Reviewers Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel were split in their response. One thumb down from Ebert, one thumb up from Siskel. Ebert, which is typical, Siskel had dog shit taste in films and was a fucking idiot and bad reviewer. Yeah. Straight up. Like, going back and reading Ebert's reviews, I'm always, like, surprised by how poignant and, like, just smart he is about mm -hmm. everything. Going back and reading Siskel shit, I'm like... This dude's a fucking douchebag and an idiot. His favorite film of all time was Saturday Night Fever, which he watched 17 times in the theater. What a moron. I know. I'm like, what the fuck is this guy? Is he, he was some kind of fucking Italian or something? <laughs> oh, no. He's an Italian-American. Oh, God. The worst kind. No, like, yeah, I mean, I typically don't listen to movie reviewers half the time. Cause I, I mean, I have, I think I can't remember which movie it was, but I did see like Ebert have like a take on a, on like a classic film. I thought was just like insane. I can't remember what it was, but I just remember like, what the fuck Ebert? Honestly, like if you read his full reviews, like mm -hmm. his, his takes like almost always make sense. Cause his big thing has never been, is a movie good? Is a movie bad? Yeah. His thing has been, did the filmmaker accomplish what they set out to accomplish? Mm -hmm. And that is what he judges based, a film's based off of, which I, I prefer. Yeah. You know, because, like, there's some movies that, like, I can recognize that it is a job well done. It is just not made for me. Mm -hmm. And I'd give a movie like that a thumbs up. You know, I'd be like, hey, I wouldn't watch it again, but holy shit, this filmmaker did what they set out to do. Yeah. Kudos, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, I've heard, like, kind of like, yeah, with, like, Skin and Marink, there's, like, sort of, like, a divisive, like take on that like either interesting. yeah here's kind of i haven't bothered it doesn't look that interesting no <laughs> so eber wrote in his chicago sun times review that he felt the movie's problem lay in its morality play stating that he wasn't sure that 600 baku lives uh weren't worth sacrificing to help billions of starf of federation citizens mm -hmm. siskel however felt differently and though he died not long after the screening of the film his wife later told Michael Piller that it was the only Star Trek movie Gene Siskel truly enjoyed, which is weird because he gave a thumbs up to fucking First Contact. Mm. I don't know. Piller himself agreed that some of what he had set out to accomplish with Insurrection did not come to fruition, but stated in interviews that he felt it was a film that Gene Roddenberry would have appreciated, which makes it a bad film. <laughs> yeah, also I don't think... Gene Roddenberry would have like liked it at all either. Like straight up, Gene Roddenberry, the only films he was really involved in like at all was Star Trek, the motion picture. Yeah. And people didn't like that. Yeah. You know, he was basically cut out of every single fucking film after that because mm -hmm. he tried to assert too many things that just aren't good for filmmaking. Yeah. So Pillar himself, uh, oh no, 
So Jonathan Frakes, who directed the film, reportedly felt the script was weak and thus made for a less-than-perfect movie, despite his confidence as a director following the success of Star Trek First Contact, uh, which he says on the Star Trek Insurrection commentary, which is a pretty awesome thing to say from a director. Like, yeah. Yep, yeah, the script was weak. <laughs> fucking, I agree. The script was He's fucking like, weak. Yeah, I had some shit, shit, I had some shit to work with. Like, yeah. I tried to polish that turd. Yeah. And just smeared shit everywhere. Yep. <laughs> Um, so director and actor Jonathan Frakes has, uh, somewhat equivocal feelings about different aspects of the film. In 2009, he recorded a new commentary with Marina Sirtis that was released on the Blu-ray disc on September, 2009. I would kind of listen listen to that. Yeah. I kind of want to now. Yeah. Uh, The film was nominated for a Hugo award for best dramatic presentation. Say what? Lost. Yeah. All right. Uh, next, we got reception at the box office. Mm. So, uh, what do you think the the budget for this film was? You said it was more than First Contact. Right? So, First Contact was a, initially thirty five, but mm-hmm. it ended up ballooning to I think forty or forty two million. I'm gonna say sixty two. Close. Fifty eight. Mm. Oh, nice. Um, so it premiered on eleventh of December, nineteen ninety eight. Number one at the box office. Had a budget of $58 million and opened to uh, 2,620 screens uh, for an opening weekend of $22 million in the U.S. and went on to make $119 million worldwide. Hmm. By comparison, First Contact, with a budget that ended up about $45 million, opened at $30 million and grossed $150 million worldwide, being a much bigger success. Yeah. The film was a huge success in Britain, however, uh, being released on the 1st of January, 1999. It enjoyed a two-week stint at the top of the box office and earned uh, over £7 million overall. So it was by far the most successful in Britain of all places. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's not that interesting. Like, <laughs> like, Britain is really big into Trek, and they always have been specifically because... Um, and and I notice a lot of our fans are very British, mm-hmm. and I think that's specifically because syndication. Yeah, obviously TOS was always in syndication there, but then TNG and DS9 were both in syndication. Voyager didn't make it into syndication to the rest of the world until it was done on UPN. Mm. And so, like a lot of people worldwide, don't really know much about Voyager. It's real popular here in the states, mm-hmm. but not so much elsewhere, mm. which is interesting. You know, DS9 and TNG a lot more so because. You know, because they were syndicated and places could just buy the rights to fucking show them. They couldn't do yeah. that with Voyager, which is dumb. Maybe in Australia or something. Yeah, which is, oh, and that's uh, one reason why um, fucking um, uh, Scott Bakula claims that like um, Enterprise like stopped after four seasons and said, if it wasn't on UPN, if it was syndicated, we would have done just fine. Yeah. Because we were doing fine on UPN for ratings, but the f- problem was they were stuck on UPN. Yeah. And UPN sucks. It did. Like for, I don't know about you, but like UPN was always the, the one, the only broadcast channel that always came in weird and fuzzy. Yeah. It just I was didn't about, look, I was just it didn't look as that. clear as any of the other channels ever. Yeah. I was about to say that because yeah, I didn't have cable mm-hmm. when I was younger. And mm-hmm. so I got whatever came in on yeah. the, on the fucking antenna. Like, so, so CBS, ABC and NBC always came in clear as day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fox was iffy. UPN was bad. Yes. Like pretty much categorically. Yeah. I never got why that was, but yeah, I would try to watch UPN sometimes because there were shows on there that I wanted to watch. Mm-hmm. And it would just be like, it would just be too distracting sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. 
So uh, Insurrection ranked number 10 out of the 12 Star Trek films, according to Box Office Mojo, not adjusting for inflation. Hmm. So, deleted scenes. Here is what I am most angry about. Hmm. Both Star Trek Deep Space Nine actors Armin Shimmerman and Max Grodchink's scenes were deleted. Quark and Rom, respectively. <laughs> Grodchink's appearance as a tr- uh, trill can be seen in the deleted scenes on the DVD special ed- edition. I did notice he was in the cast, mm-hmm. and I was just like... He was a trill, though. Which is mm, interesting. That's interesting. I would have loved to see that. Me too. Uh, Armin Shimmerman's appearance as Quark can be seen in the photo gallery of the DVD. However, the scene itself has never been released. Quark would have been seen vacationing on the Baku planet, having arrived there via the USS Ticonderoga. Which would what? Have, which would not have made any sense in that context not, of the film. I think that's probably why they cut it, because, uh, yeah. yeah, oh, so no one really knows about this planet. But it's a vacation like, yeah, for, for some fucking dork. Like, come on, no. Yeah, well, especially, like, someone like Quark yeah. would have definitely exploited that. Yes, 100%. He, he would have been, like, he would have been, like, ah, you know, he would have, like, got Zek on the phone. Mm. He would have been, like, hey, uh, we're going to have, like, an entire spa retreat here mm. that literally makes you younger. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> so, and, he would've, and they would have, like, been been besieged by, like, Ferengi and, like, and Dabo girls and everything else. Which, and, honestly... Would have made a superior film. Let's be honest. It would, that, yeah, like actually make Quark the villain of the movie. That would, <laughs> honestly, you couldn't have made it more perfect. Yeah, and then of course, like they don't kill Quark at the end. They teach him a lesson. I like that. And like, and uh, or like send him packing and be like, no, you're not gonna fucking like chase these people off their land so you can make it like some sort of like, uh, um, uh masturbatorium casino type thing <laughs> on, on, this, on this beautiful serene planet. So Shimmerman commented, uh, while I was doing DS nine, Michael Pillar was writing insurrection. We would have dinner dinner parties every now and then. And he would say, there's a scene for quark at one dinner party. He would say I was in, uh, and another, he would say I was out. Eventually he said that he had put in quark in the final version. And I was in. Rick Berman called me at home and offered me the part a couple days later. I pretended to not know anything because that's the Hollywood thing to do. And the next thing I knew, I was shooting the movie. Um, great. That was in an article. I have to mention this. That was an article um, from Star Trek Magazine, issue 131. And the title of the article is Quark Express. <laughs> Uh, in dialogue cut from the library scene, Riker and Troy delve deeper into the motivation of the Sona, uh, summarized as wine, women, and song, revealing that they had recently begun to suffer genetic difficulties that prevented them from procreating. This made their struggle to obtain the metaphysic particles less about vanity and more about a struggle to continue their race, which actually, I think, raises the stakes and makes it make more sense, right? Yeah, and it also like uh, made them more more uh, human and yeah, and more like, relatable, more relatable to the audience, like because yeah. it really like they just seem like they're like just psycho, like mo- like motiveless psychos, mm-hmm. and if like you know you know and that would have like I, maybe that would have been too much of a moral quandary for the audience, like be like because another thing it also explains their need for using slave labor, mm. right? Because they can't procreate and make their own kids or anything, so they're very old and feeble, mm-hmm. and they they have to have others do things. For but them. then, but then, like they're not old and feeble. Like, well, they they are old, but then like fucking like uh, 
Mar is fucking like throwing the admiral everywhere because like they're genetically modified in some that's, way. That's true. Yeah, but they're still old and feeble. But I guess like I guess they they maybe like decided to downplay that because yeah, like because I don't think it's like really stressed that like the reason they're doing like the skin stretching thing is because like they're old and <laughs> like their skin's drooping and mm-hmm. like they looked all fucked up. Yeah. So a different ending from the one seen in theaters was also shot, but ultimately deemed too soft. In the original ending, Picard managed to disable the Collector, uh, but Bill Maher escaped into a small pod that was then ejected into the planet's rings. Bill Maher eventually died, but, uh, sorry, Bill Maher eventually ultimately died when he was bombarded with metaphysic particles that caused him to age in reverse and eventually disappear altogether, Mm. which would have actually kind of been awesome. Yeah. Do a Benjamin Button thing. Yeah. Although the scene was deleted, actor Philip Glasser uh, received credit on screen for his role as a younger version of Bill Maher during the scene. Oh. Interesting. We're going to close out on this fact. This is the final thing for a subspace transmissions here. So, Data was supposed to respond after feeling Riker's uh, freshly shaven face that it was not, as Riker claimed, as smooth as an android's bottom, but... According to Frakes in the DVD commentary, Brent Spiner refused to say that line, leading to Data just giving him a look and a grin. Which the, I thought was, was better. Yeah, the line uh, was included in the novelization, although it's weird that Spiner literally refused to say that. Yeah. Like, he's a silly enough guy, and he does silly shit all the time mm-hmm. on set. I'm like, really? He refused to say that? Yeah, <laughs> but I why. do like it's more subtle with like the touch. Yeah, the touch, and like, no, it's not. Kind of thing. But also, that's not the last fact. That's not? What's the last fact, buddy? Did you mention the Arnie connection? No, what's the Arnie connection? You didn't... Re- oh, that's what that I was going to mention. Like, uh, you know, like that, he was... Arnold was the original choice. Oh, oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that actually wasn't in the, the, the stuff. But, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so Arnold was the original choice for uh, for Bill Maher. On yeah. Which I think... New rule. <laughs> New You're rule. dead. <laughs> Which I think probably would have set set the movie a little bit... He would have been more fitting for the film. It would like have, F- although it, it, would, would have, it would have put too much emphasis on him, though, I think. I think if they <laughs> actually got Arnie at the crux of his career here, like... Yeah. Because this is, like, right after True Lies, when he is, like, on top of Hollywood. Yeah. Like, if they would have put him in here, there would have been, I guarantee you, there would have been some kind of contention... With uh fucking, with uh Patrick Stewart because Patrick Stewart needs to be the action man. Well, that would have been a cool scene because like yeah, like Picard being pursued by a fucking like giant dude, giant behemoth with a fucking fucked up face. He's just like, I will crush you. <laughs> that would, I mean, it it would have been cool. It would have entirely changed the movie though, and maybe for the better. Who knows? Yeah. Like, I mean, this movie's fine. But it's like, but it, like F. Murray Abraham was kind of squandered in his role. I feel and right, and, and so it makes me wonder: would they would they squander Arnold? And Arnold, you know, he's proven to be a convincing, scary villain. And you know, that's the thing. He finished True Lies. You know, he started to really up up his acting game. And I think Ish, he would, but he's still Arnold, no matter what you put him in. He yeah. always will. He always sounds like Arnold, no matter what you do. <laughs> but he's an alien, you know. That's how those aliens sound. They sound oh, yeah. Austrian. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's, yeah. <laughs> but then you'd have to get every single person of his species to also sound Austrian. Yeah, they and did it. it. They did it with a uh, Wonder Woman. But, but but no. But then you wonder, like, <laughs> why is the Universal Translator giving all these these motherfuckers Austrian accents? That doesn't make any sense. Hey, a, a, a French guy sounds British. That's true. And uh, Romulan right, so, woman sounds so, Scottish. So so. <laughs> 
what I like to believe though. So obviously Picard is the only one on the enterprise with an accent, correct? Everyone mm-hmm. else has a flat accent. Yeah. So everything is from his perspective. Mm. And so he's hearing everyone else being universally translated, but he's the only one who hears his own voice. Oh, Get that? Yeah, Get I that. see it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm like, on board with it. Yeah, it's a big brain shit right there, my friends. <laughs> yeah, so uh, mm-hmm. with that, Captain's Log Supplemental. Well, friends, it's, look, it's like it's time for us to warp away. Be mm. well, travel safe, and go have a great prostate orgasm. Mm. All right. Well, thanks for checking with the soy boys, girls, and other worldly beans. Hang dong and shocker. Soy, 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 soy. Soy, 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 soy,